I tell you what, recording a podcast is thirsty business, which is why we are really excited to announce that this episode of Well and Good is brought to you by Clean Collective. Clean Collective are changing the premix game by producing a range of 100% clean vodka and gin RTDs that, would you believe, contain no sugar, no carbs, no preservatives, are gluten-free and use only natural ingredients. They are a premium alternative to your stock standard run-of-the-mill RTDs, are naturally sweetened and also bloody delicious, if you ask me. Available only from your local liquor store, so next time you're in, look out for the gorgeous white bottles and cans and give them a try. Hello guys. Hey guys. So today's episode is, I think you guys are going to love it, so it's probably the most all-encompassing discussion around health that we've probably had. I feel like we we covered a lot of topics. Um, so Cliff Harvey and Bella Marinkovic are both nutritionists with the Holistic Performance Institute, uh, which helps to teach people how to be nutrition coaches and nutritionists themselves. And they've both got a world of experience in all sorts of areas in health and wellness. And uh, we delved pretty deep into that today. We covered a whole bunch of different topics. It was, uh, man, it was such a good chat. These guys are so great. We talked about things like experimenting with diets, um, some good tips on supplementation. We talked about microdosing. We talked about eating edible weeds. We talked about foraging. We talked about hallucinogens um, and probably some other random stuff in there as well. But it was truly fascinating and uh, we know you're going to love it. Yeah, so this one's a little longer than normal because we actually just couldn't condense it. There was too much, there, there were too many little gold nuggets in there. So, I think And we, you know how much we love a gold nugget. We love a gold nugget. So sit back, you know, put your seatbelt on, strap yourselves in. Get, and your, get your panning dish ready for those gold nuggets. <laughs> and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to Walkworth. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that we've got people in the same room as us. Because for a while we, we haven't had that, so this is quite cool. I've been through Walkworth so many times. I've actually been in Walkworth a lot, but never up in this sort of little suburban area. It's really cool. Yeah, it's a great it. little town. We're big fans, aren't we? Yeah, we're quite protective over it, so we really appreciate you <laughs> saying that you like it. No, I do really like it. Um, so first of all, so you guys are both clinical nutritionists. Um, Cliff, you have your own nutrition college called the Holistic Performance Institute. So we'll, we'll do a bit of a deep dive on that soon. But first of all, I didn't realize that you're a world record holding athlete. I I guess I still am. I'm not sure if I still hold the records, but I was once upon a time, yeah. Now I was a, an all-round weightlifter for a number of years. And, and so like as the world record, the heaviest thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, the category. Right. That's, that's what he set the record for. Do you set the record for the heaviest thing? <laughs> Is it's, it a very? It was a very specific lift, right? It's a peculiar sport. It's um basically if you go back to the old days of weightlifting, they they never had set lifts. So there's probably 140 lifts that could be in a competition, and they'd choose um, usually between six and ten lifts at any one competition. And so you get really weird things like one-arm snatches and one, one-handed deadlifts and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of interesting events. Um, I set a world record in the two-man deadlift. So there's two of us on the bar. And in a, a thumbless deadlift, which is basically hanging onto the bar without your thumbs. Um, unofficially, I betted the, the world standard for the one-hand deadlift. Um, briefly held the one-arm snatch world record. And um, Whoa. That's yeah. really cool. And a deadlift pull from the knees. 
Can you give us? I want to know what the one arm snatch <clears throat> record was and the one arm deadlift. Can you remember those? The one arm snatch was only, it wasn't that heavy. It was only about 65 kilos, but that was a body weight of 72. Um, the one hand deadlift was 180 kilos. And the, the rack pull from the knees was 475 kilos. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm thinking about my deadlift with two hands isn't nearly that. That's, that yeah. That's See, the, the difference, though, <laughs> is that you can probably still do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so many back injuries and things. It's been a oh, hard road back, yeah. Yeah, because a one-armed deadlift, aren't, I mean, that would surely put a bit of yeah. strain on something. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I... When I came back for, I lived in Canada for a while. When I came back here, I did a few, you know, strength expos and stuff. Like at the fitness expo, I'd do some strength exhibitions and I did a couple on TV, but I wasn't really training by that point. I'd retired from competition, but people would say, oh, do you want to come on TV and do this thing? Yeah, sure. Why not? Stupidest thing to do. I mean, you got to be training, right? You can't just turn up cold, you know, on a Thursday night at Māori television and then lift 180 kilos with one hand. I was in the neighbourhood. I was just coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's really impressive. It and is impressive. Actually, you also. I'll just um, direct your attention to uh, the the wall where Art has a world record for the loudest crunch oh, of an apple. Oh my god! So, wow. A similar kind of thing. <laughs> that's you know. amazing. Well, 2016. Did you get a certificate like that that you got framed? I, I have a certificate. It's not as cool as that, I don't think, and it's certainly not as cool a record. Mm. I mean, that that's a sort of. It's very niche. Oh, that's also, a once in a generation type Also thing. obscure. And I can also relate to you with the injuries associated with these records as well. Because, <laughs> no, I um, I think I, I had to do a lot of training for this record. I seriously did. I got like a huge box of apples and would practice um, taking bites into them to try and make the loudest apples. And I got quite a sore jaw. And I think I have an ongoing issue with my jaw. Oh, and in no. fact, the other day, well, you know, a couple of months ago, <laughs> I yawned and... An apple came out. <laughs> <laughs> That's really that would be great. <laughs> I yawned and dislocated my jaw, and then and it Could was you a, close it again. Nah, so it was kind of like dislocated or, or subluxated for a couple of days. I went to the doctor, and he's like, "Yeah, just leave it." And so I was like, "Okay." Oh, no. then, like, I, and then they said, "You know, was it an accident?" And I was like, "Yep." And then I like, okay, fill out the ACC form. So I did. Then I got a call from ACC the next day, and they said, "Unfortunately, we can't cover your injury because it was self-inflicted." Oh, oh no! Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. Don't oh. yawn because ACC won't cover that's you. That's a bit hard. However, if it's a sport, yeah. mm. it's a sport yeah. injury, and that's you know competitive eating. Yeah, comes exactly. under that. I, ACC, I, if you're listening, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hook it up. Yeah, what's your stance on that? <laughs> yeah. So you fit right in with the mouth breathers while you had to. Yeah. yeah, you bet. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm, actually, I'm just getting over a uh, a nose operation to clear out one of my na- uh, nasal passages that was blocked from this is interesting isn't it? blocked from a previous <laughs> a break start. 10 years ago oh, no. and um no it's good it's good yeah yeah i'm, cool. I'm that feeling from good breaking it yeah. yeah and so now i'm breathing a lot better through it That's and good. i'm looking forward to really getting into my nasal breathing did you, is it, did so you snore go. because of it did no you? no, no. Oh, oh yeah nice. just on the one side so you'd have to roll oh, over. do i yeah because remember like there's been a couple of times where i've had to Roll you up. Wake you up. And just hold it down for a long time. So you'd recommend the surgery? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Are you looking to get one? My nose is a mess. I was actually going to say it looks so... (laughs) been broken so many times boxing. It's just ridiculous. So you you can't breathe out of it very well? 
I can't breathe very well at all. Mm. Yeah. That's why I stopped. It was really affecting my, it was literally affecting my ability to speak in public. So doing, you know, all the, the seminars and things that I do, oh. um, it became really difficult to, to get enough air and, oh. I, and I, I didn't want to become a full-time mouth breather. No. Mm-hmm. Just a part-time. Yeah. 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 Part-timer. Yeah, private mouth breather. <laughs> <laughs> Just in, in the comfort of your own home <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> Okay, well, that was a really enjoyable tangent. Um, but can we just go back to the Holistic Performance Institute? Can you tell us how how that sort of came about? I've lectured a, a lot at colleges and universities through the years. And um, <clears throat> basically, I came back here. I was lecturing at a college, and there, there were a couple of things that I thought were just not cutting through, right? We had a lot of students who, number one, they weren't being taught evidence-based stuff. So they weren't being taught evidence-based information about nutrition. Um, If they were, it typically didn't have a holistic sort of focus, so they weren't bridging that gap. And there was a massive drop-off rate for students. So they would do all this theoretical study, then they'd get out of college, and the rates of students going into practice were extremely low. So I sort of had this idea that we could encapsulate all of that. We could bridge that gap, because there isn't one, between science and holism. And uh, basically provide a community of support where, in, in many respects, it's like lifelong learning. So people feel supported. Um, they have a community around them. They, they get the skills that they can actually use in practice. And so we've, we've been doing the, um, the Institute now for, I think, around eight years. And I think we're really just starting to get that cut through now. Mm. Yeah. Oh, cool. So... When, when you say like holistic nutrition, that's taking the whole body into account, the whole lifestyle into account, is that sort of how you would explain it? Yeah, so it's mainly you're sort of wearing caftans and um, using scented <laughs> candles and things yeah, like that, so. taking long baths, you know, all that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah. integral to it. It's, it's really about looking at the, the, the whole person in their whole environment mm. um, and all of the modalities that, that might help that person. So obviously we focus on nutrition. But it's really important to look at it truly holistically because I think when people think about nutri- uh, sorry holism nowadays, they're not actually thinking holism. They're thinking alternative, right? So it is all that stuff that I was just talking about. Whereas holism encapsulates everything from the orthodox, you know, the, the very standard medical treatments we might get all the way through to, you know, the alternative things. But the metric we can then use to be safe and effective is basically science. So that's why I don't see there's any polarity there. We have a holistic worldview, and then science is our way that we explain the world around us. So the way we observe and measure and actually figure out which things are, are going to be most effective. And so that's really where we're at. And, um, you know, we will sometimes get some, some criticism from the ostensibly evidence-based people saying, well, why do you use this word holism? Because it doesn't really mean anything. Well, I think it means a lot, and I think it's incredibly important to be looking at all of those things. And it's not just the person; it's also their psychosocial environment, their their literal literal environment. You know, it's all those various things that go towards uh, having people be healthier and happier. But there's more than that. I think we need to go way beyond health. People become so obsessed with health in this modern world, and it's typically a, a distorted ideal of health that they get from social media and they aim for that so heavily they actually forget why they're doing it Mm. and I often ask in in seminars if you could achieve your idea of health with the snap of your fingers would you be happy 
and the the gut reaction of almost all people is, well, no, it wouldn't, because that that's not the goal. The goal is, what does that mean? Well, if I'm healthier, I'll be a better dad, a better mum. You know, I'll be a better friend. I'll be able to do cool, creative, passionate stuff to make my life better, but also make the world better. And that's, I think, what we need to be shooting for is going beyond health into truly achieving human potential. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's interesting you said that as well because then, you know, it begs the question, what is health? Because I think a lot of people would be looking at, say, Instagram and things like that and seeing these bodies that are these kind of like perfect bodies mm. and they probably perceive that as being healthy. But, like, is that is that healthy? It's just a snapshot into someone's life. They're showing all the highlights of their best, you know, their best self, but you need to see all the other stuff too because yeah. that's just that's, that's real, you mm. know? Yeah. So even the healthiest people, the happiest people have shit days. It's so normal. Mm. We need to see that more so that people don't feel so bad about it. Yeah. Yeah. We we had um, someone on our podcast a while ago who, who said that anybody can eat chicken and broccoli all day yeah. and look like they know what they're talking about. Yeah. And, and I really like that because we put health, like, onto looks and mm. say, ah, oh, like, that person is mm. in such great shape. They must be so healthy. They, they must be this. But just because someone's really particular about their diet, it doesn't necessarily mean that their mental health is in check, no. they're relaxed or happy or they're doing what they want to do. Exactly. Yeah, what, is, what does happiness look like? What does a good mental health state look like? Mm. You don't know. Yeah. You, you don't know. I don't know. Was I asking you that? <laughs> I, don't that was know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I got, talking about nutrition, though, can you run us through your carb-appropriate approach to nutrition? Yeah, ba- basically, it's so. The this idea. is this is this is your framework that you've kind of developed, right? Through, I guess, what would it be a whole lot of trial and error and learning through yourself through your lifetime? Yeah. Um, so, I, I'm probably most well known in the nutrition world for, for doing some interesting foundational research on keto, right? So I, I did the first research that had actually looked at keto flu symptoms. So those sort of set of symptoms that people experience when they go into um, ketosis or go on a ketogenic diet. Um, it's actually a myth anyway. Keto flu is a different thing altogether. We can ah. talk about that. Um, but obviously that, that was sort of the focus of my research. But that was always within the context of trying to figure out which diets work best for which people. And so going back to when I started in clinical practice about 23 years ago now, I started formulating this idea of carbohydrate appropriate because I had clients back then, and this is when low carb and keto were complete no-nos, like no one was doing it because it was seen to be so dangerous. It's not. Um, But I had clients who were following very low carb ketogenic diets and getting phenomenal results. But of course, that, that's not appropriate for everybody. And so I had clients who were also, you know, I had professional rugby players. I was working with members of the New Zealand Rugby League team, uh, world champion boxers, all sorts. They're not going to fit with a keto diet. So some of them were on very high-carb diets. And so it started sort of coming together into this idea of the, the carb-appropriate spectrum. And so I, for the book, The Carb-Appropriate Diet, I sort of simplified that down into a stepwise process. Now that's not what I use all the time, but it was a very way, a very easy way in the book for people to understand how they could moderate their carb intake to get the, the best results for them. And so it started with a simple process of, well, let's just start off by experimenting, having fun, getting rid of sugar, added sugars, not necessarily the natural sugars, and see where you're at. Give it a go for sort of two or three weeks. 
after that, you can sort of reassess. If you're getting great results, don't don't change. Like there, there's no reason to do more extreme things than you need to to get optimal results. Whereas people think they need to be at the extreme end, right? And we see that now with fasting, for example. Everyone's saying, well, how long should I fast for? So however long you need to to get the results. And for some people, you don't want to fast that much. Um, but basically, there's a stepwise process there where then people could start to sequentially avoid um, the higher carb foods and find basically where they were at. Now, like I say, it's just an approach and it's an approach that worked really well for a lot of people, but it's certainly not the only approach, but that's kind of the nice thing about having a carb appropriate idea is it is it is a spectrum and it, it pertains to anyone because you can fit in basically anywhere so long as you know it's serving you, you're achieving your goals, and most importantly, that there's a, a true outcome there which is again going beyond health and actually looking into things like creativity, passion and purpose and, and where you actually want to be for your human potential. So, okay, that's that's fascinating. So how do you know where you fit on the carb spectrum? Like, for example, Art and I are very different with our carb needs, but we're a couple, we live together and we eat together. So how do you guys find that? Um, like as a couple, do you have different needs and how do you know what your needs even are? We are quite different. We cycle as well. Like sometimes I'll be high. We cliff. not on a bike. I don't. No, like. <laughs> neither of us actually literally cycle. <laughs> so you do carb cycling. So we carb cycle. It depends. I guess we we both intuitively follow how we feel. So if we yeah. if I'm feeling really low in energy, and I'm training more to try and kind of kick out of that, I'll eat more. And I'll eat, I'll be re- less restricted with what I'm eating, kind of follow more what I feel like. So if I feel like eating more carbs and I'm feeling good, then I'll just follow that. And if I'm feeling a bit sluggish. And Can you clarify, when you say eat more carbs, what do you mean? Oh, sorry. I, I mean, I mean, well, I mean, our, our diet with carbs is typically kumara, rice, just stuff like that. So I'm not talking about just like bread and whole food. Whole food, whole food carbs, yeah. Like grains. And I, I, I love to cook, so I don't like to restrict the foods that I cook. Yeah. So if something like if I'm making a curry, I'll make rice because it goes well with it. <laughs> like I don't yeah. want to, I don't want to yeah. like hold back from not eating that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And that's so, how that works for us because we pretty much eat the same, even the same size dinner. So pretty I much same. Eat more. Yeah. Same yeah. food, same size, whatever. But I'm probably eating more through the day, mm. you know, having more after training and that kind of stuff. So basically it's almost like the discretionary meals where maybe we're not necessarily together. Mm. Or, um, you know, discretionary foods that we eat around meals will be quite different. Mm. But the, the meals themselves are the same. Mm. And mm. That, that works out really well. And I think that's important for people because, you know, so often I see clients who they're trying to stick to something so rigidly that they isolate themselves from their family. And I, re- I don't think it's necessary, number one, but I think it, it's also detrimental to that whole psychosocial environment of food. And that's really, really important. You know, when we put together our alternative dietary guidelines when I was um, with the team at AUT, that was a key component of it was that, number one, we need to eat more natural, unrefined foods, Mm. but we want to eat that in a supportive environment with friends and whanau, you know, all those things are are as important as what we're putting in our mouths. Mm. Well, I guess otherwise it's kind of like, what's the point? So great, you'll be in shape, but you'll be lonely and sad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? And like in those sort of high restrictive nutritional frameworks or diets or things, you know, I don't think that they're a good long-term solution for people. And it just, 
you're right, it completely isolates them. But also, you forget that, like, food is there to be enjoyed. Yeah. It's like one of the greatest pleasures of life. Yeah. Mm. When I came into the industry, there was this overriding sort of philosophy that people had. It was a real, um, it's almost like self-flagellation, right? People would say, well, food's just fuel to me. And I'm like, that's so boring. (laughs) Like, food is entertainment for me most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And I look for, we have a, you know, couple of treat meals every week we don't call them cheats because they're not cheats they're Mm. just treats that we would have enjoyment meals yeah food for the soul and i mean i i really look forward to that stuff and i i I love it and there's no there's no guilt there's no shame there's nothing around around that at all it's all just this diversity of different things that you can experience and to me that's just fun yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Food, food should be fun. And Bella, you were a vegetarian for so five long. years, and um, were yeah. you vegan for a couple of years as yeah, well? Yeah, for two or three. And yeah, I was, I, I was never more unhealthy during that time. Really? Yeah. In, in what way? I I was so I was I went through a phase of being quite obsessed with not eating any animal products, and it became like quite a big part of my identity, which I don't think is very healthy. What was what was your reasoning behind not eating animal products? It was mostly moral, ethical. Um, Actually, one the reason I turned vegan was because mum, my mum bought me a tray of eggs from her friend who ran a farm, and I was making scrambled eggs one morning and cracked an egg. And there was a chick inside. Oh, no. Yeah. And <laughs> I cried like That'll immediately burst into tears because it was just so revolting <gasps> and so horrible. Like it was traumatizing. So we're not expecting that. Yeah. And I was just like, can't, I can't do eggs. And they're my favorite food. I eat a lot of eggs. You've just put a whole bunch of people off eggs. Now. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that's, that's what it is. It's the reality of what you're still eating an animal product. But mm. it's, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, kind of it, that for me was just like, no, not having eggs. I don't really eat dairy anyway, so it was just a natural progression. Mm. But um, And then you met me. Then I met Cliff and I started eating meat again because I started craving it and I was obviously needing the protein. And So what what, so what sort of, uh, what were you experiencing in terms of ill health? Oh, I was just, I wasn't at a weight that I was happy with and I wasn't really holding enough muscle, I think, to be healthy. And I was hungry, eating a lot more than I probably should have been. So it was just the cycle of obviously chasing nutrients that I needed. I know you don't agree with me, but I think your eyesight was worse too. <laughs> oh, really? Like Cliff, when we started dating, Cliff <clears throat> lived in this place in Takapuna. You had to go down these really steep, long stairs to get to the house. And at night, it was pitch black. So I would have to film. It took me like 20 minutes to get down the stairs. <laughs> I would film my way down the stairs, literally crawling with my butt <laughs> on the stairs. So if any lights came on me, it would have looked really tragic. I <laughs> was like, oh, is that drunk or something? <laughs> yeah, I honestly, I would have looked drunk. <laughs> but I, I think that was vitamin A. Yeah. There's a large proportion of Kiwis. I think it's around, I could be wrong, but I think from memory it's around 10 to 20% of Kiwis don't get enough vitamin A from their, their diet, right? Mm. And a lot of people have real problems converting the the, the pro-vitamin A, you know, your carotenoids that convert into vitamin A. They have real problems converting that. So the conversion rates differ massively between people. So basically if for some people, if they're not getting enough preformed vitamin A, which comes from animal products then that's going to have a raft of health effects, you know, immune uh, effects, effects on skin condition, wound healing, and particularly night vision is, is going to be massive, right? So you're saying you can eat all the carrots you want, but if you don't get the animal protein, then you won't better see in the dark. I was eating a lot of carrots. So For some was, people. And yeah. still yeah. had to way down the stairs. technically night blind, pretty much. It was, and that, that's it where was... individuality is, is so important. Right, because some people are going to thrive on a vegan diet, and they're probably really good converters of um, 
pro vitamin A to active vitamin A. They're probably really good converters of the, the base omega-3 alpha-linolenic acid into the, the downchain um, EPA and DHA, mm. whereas some people aren't going to convert them very well at all. So for those people, we've got to sort of say, well, you know, you're either going to have to find some supplement that's going to do the job or, hey, maybe you're better off eating some some animal products. Is there is there any sort of form of testing, like genetic testing, that can determine how good individuals are at converting these things and that could then have it like, you know, tell if someone is going to be better equipped for a predominantly plant-based diet, say? I think it's getting there. I think the, the problem we have from a lot of the research is that there's typically one gene doesn't do one thing and several genes are involved with complexes of outcomes. And so it can be quite difficult to determine which genes are absolutely associated with some sort of outcome for health. But the, the testing's getting much better, and more importantly, the translation, because we, we can see the genes easy enough. You know, we can sequence genes very easily now. But in terms of then having the translation through to how that affects what we should do, there's a, still a pretty big gap. Um, a really good example of that is a, a lot of companies will claim to, to, to be able to give you a carb tolerance test. You know, I was at one of the fitness expos, and someone came over to me and said, look, I can do a gene test on you, and I can tell tell you exactly how many grams of carbs you can have in a day. I feel like you're the wrong person for, yeah. for them to come up and be like, I can teach you something about carbs. And I said, do you know who I am? <laughs> well, it's quite funny because I said, no, you can't. And I said, well, how do you know? And I said, oh, well, because we were actually doing a pilot study of that because I was going to do my PhD on that exact line of research, right? And the pilot study we did showed that that particular marker had really no association whatsoever with whether people had, you know, metabolic disorder or better insulin status, all these things that are associated with carb um, tolerance. So we abandoned that line of research for the time being because there just wasn't anything there. And so that's an example of something that was, it was really promising, but it just didn't cut through. And so we tend to focus a lot more and, you know, my research has predominantly been on looking at just standard blood markers, you know, looking at someone's standard blood panel that you get at your dock, nice and cheap, easily accessible, and how that might predict which type of diet someone should be on. And that, that that's actually a lot more effective because what you're really seeing there is a picture of what's happening in the body. And we know from the evidence certain things we can do to manipulate those bloods through the, the diet we're eating, through the macronutrients we're taking in. So is that something that people listening could do? Could they go and get a blood test from their doctor and then uh, somehow f- try and figure out what it all means and then how that relates to their diet, dietary needs? That They could, yeah. Um, if you went to your doctor and got your standard lipid panel, so cholesterol, LDL, HDL, and triglycerides most importantly, maybe some other things like HbA1c, which is a measure of average blood glucose over time, what we're really looking for there, particularly if we see a high triglyceride content in the blood, that's fats in the blood, right, triglycerides, that typically tells us that the person is more metabolically disordered and they would benefit most from a low-carb diet. If, on the other hand, their triglycerides are really good, um, sort of under one, the reference range is up to two, but we'd say under one, they're probably really insulin sensitive and they can probably tolerate carbohydrates, not just tolerate them, but benefit from a higher carbohydrate diet. Now, we've only done one pilot study on that, and because it was quite a small study, the, the results were completely unequivocal. 
Um, but we think from the clinical experience we've had that it's definitely a very strong hypothesis. I'm going into scientist mode now where I'm sort of starting to walk back what I've said, but <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty confident that people can do that. Yeah. What I will say though is it's that's probably less important than just eating a diet that's based on unrefined food. Because when we look at results over a year, two years, three years, when we have long-term trials with long follow-up periods, we tend to see that although people might benefit more from one type of diet earlier on, they'll still benefit from any diet that is based on natural unrefined foods, right? And the effect size between those diets, irrespective of where they started out, is going to narrow over time. So in other words, the longer you can stick to a diet, the better it's going to be. So that's where the psychosocial stuff comes in. You know, I might have someone who has metabolic syndrome and they would be best suited to a low-carb diet, but they hate it. But they really are great on a higher carb, natural, you know, whole food type diet, lentils and vegetables and all that kind of stuff. Hey, that's going to be great. So long as they can tolerate, tolerate it and they don't have any allergies or intolerances, then that diet's still going to be fantastic. Maybe it's not quite so effective in the early stages, but overall, hey, that doesn't matter if you can't stick to it. Yeah. Okay. So, so then for people listening, if you, if they're, they're thinking, how do I know how, yeah, how, how do I figure out my, my own personal carb appropriate diet? You mentioned a while ago, like maybe trying it out for like a couple of weeks and seeing how you feel. Is that kind of how you would do it or? Yeah, I think one of the things we've lost in trying to find the perfect diet and achieve the perfect body and have all these ideas of perfection is we've lost having fun and experimenting. Mm. You know, I think trying out new things with with diet or anything else is fun. I like trying out new lifts in the gym. I like trying out new sports. I like trying out new foods, you know, and that's all part and parcel of it. I think though that there are, I call them diet and lifestyle levers. And I think they're probably some of the most important things that people can manipulate because they're simple, right? A really good example of a dietary lever that's really common now, but people don't look at it as a dietary lever is fasting because people tend to think, well, fasting is either really good if you're into it and you're looking at that sort of line of research, or you might be a bit more orthodox and you say, no, fasting's stupid. The truth is somewhere in between. Fasting's really valuable for people for whom it's valuable. I know it's a bit parsimonious, but that's the way it is. What I'm getting at here is that let's look at a simple situation. You habitually overeat. Very common. Probably most people in the modern world do that. And it's not necessarily their fault because we live in a food environment that's really conducive to that. But if you're a habitual overeater, if you were eating four meals a day and you took out one of those meals, so you had a longer fasting window, the, the likelihood is you're going to eat less. I know this sounds like really simple stuff, but that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what people don't recognize is you might be a habitual undereater. And because of that, you're experiencing chronic fatigue or you know increases in pain, all these various things that come from being habitually and subclinically underfed. Now, I see a lot of people who are that type of person, maybe they're suffering chronic fatigue and they say, should I fast? I say, well, probably not because it looks like you're under eating all the time. So for you, a shorter fasting window, adding a meal back in, that's the best way to use that dietary lever. So it's all just about simple interventions that can either push up or down the energy intake. And there's obviously um, sort of lifestyle things that can affect that as well outside of dietary levers. Hmm. Wow, that's really... 
fascinating, actually. Yeah. I feel I mean, like I need to eat more. I think you need to eat more, too. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people do. You yeah. know, yeah. we're so framed in the modern world at looking at our biggest, probably our biggest health issue, which is the, you know, diabetes epidemic, diabetes slash obesity epidemic that we have. We forget that there's probably a significant minority of people who habitually undereat. And it's, it's really common as a line of research in sports, but it doesn't necessarily translate into everyday people. Now, it's an interesting one because a lot of people who experience hormonal dysfunction, um, as I mentioned, chronic fatigue, things like that, they'll try and jump into really esoteric ways of fixing that when often it's just a simple matter of they're not fueled. They're either not fueled optimally or they're not getting in all the micronutrients they require. So in, in either sense, it's a, a, a reality of not being nourished enough. Mm. Wow, that's really interesting because I feel like I don't really eat that much during the day because of Milo and I just sometimes can't, can't mm. be bothered. But then we have real big dinners. So do we. Yeah. yeah we do that that, as well. I just love a really yeah. big meal at yeah. the end of the day. And you, you can know? eat as much as you want too if you've been fasting as well, but which is a really nice I think people should. Freeing. Yeah. I think the old idea of... You know, you snack and graze through the, the day. I mean, that, that doesn't work. We know from the, the research now that that doesn't work. Mm. But it's not just about it doesn't work as well. It's also not as satisfying. Like, you know, who was, is it Carl's Jr., eat like you mean it? <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> like, eat until you're full. Yeah. And when people say moderately full, it's, again, a question I ask in a lot of the lectures I give to my students. I say, do you, do you know what it means to be moderately full? And it was like, no. Nah. <laughs> do you know what it means to be really full? Like, yeah, yeah. definitely. Like, stick a fork in me, I'm done kind of yeah. full. <laughs> That's how you want to be, right? You get to a point where you're actually full. Yeah. Couldn't have another bite. Yeah. Awesome. Then wait. You know, and when you're hungry again, that's cool. You, you can eat. Yeah. That's that's kind of the framework I find myself. Um, it works for me. I have a huge dinner and then I don't really, I'm not hungry until 11 a.m., mm. 12, like midday. That, that seems, seems pretty work, standard. I think a lot of people really like well that. works really well for me. Yeah. 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 Whereas you like to have a bit of brekkie, you wake up ravenous. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> the, the bigger the meal at nighttime, the hungrier you are. In the I morning. know. What's, what's I, that about? Um, I don't even understand that myself. I find That's eating certain things quite late. I wake up starving. Mm. And yeah. the earlier we have dinner, I wake up not hungry at all. That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it's like your body is like, whoa, there's heaps <laughs> coming in, so we're going to quickly just like digest it as quickly as possible. So so everything's in overdrive. I'm sure yeah. that, that'd be it, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. From a clinical point of view, yeah. that sounds weird. <laughs> that, that sounds about, that sounds about, about yeah. right. Um, yeah, it's a funny one. And then what about um, men and women's hormones? Because obviously they're quite different. Mm. So are there... Um, general rules of thumb in terms of nutrition for men and women that can affect their hormones mm. differently or is it very much individual? It, it is very individual. Yeah. Uh, it, it's extremely individual. It's very individual within um, the the sexes, mm -hmm. right? Because we're obviously not talking about gender here because that's a social construct. We're talking about no. actual biological sexes. Mm -hmm. So within the sexes, there's a lot of variability. That also means there's a lot of crossover, so it's an interesting one because we have a prevailing narrative that's coming out at the moment that men and women are very different and women should eat differently. And there are things that come out associated with that, you know, these sort of absolutes. Women shouldn't do high-intensity training. They shouldn't fast. Um, they shouldn't do low-carb. And people trot out studies to support that. But when you actually look into the details of the studies, 
it tends to show, not tends to show, I'm going to say 100% of the time it shows that people are not suffering because of fasting windows. They're not suffering, women mainly, are not suffering because of a low-carb diet. They're suffering because they're, they're under-fueling. And so there's a very famous study that is often used to support the idea that women shouldn't do low-carb. The study didn't actually look at low-carb. It looked at chronic underfeeding, and the women were actually eating a very high proportion of their diet from carbohydrate. So that shows us something that we already know, that if you're under-eating, man or woman, there's going to be some pretty severe detrimental effects for your hormonal balance. That's why I think it's really important to, to take a step back, be really pragmatic about the research. And that leads us to going back to simplicity, really. You know, the big things that we put in place are the most important. Typically, when we cover off those big things, the small things then tend to fall into place. And the same is probably actually true for um, intracycle variation for women through the menstru menstrual cycle. There's a lot of sort of talk about how women should eat differently at different times of the cycle. And really the evidence for that is, is almost non-existent because the effect size of changing things through the cycle is so tiny. And when we look at the extreme variability between different women, you, you can't give blanket, mm. you know, blanket statements like that. What we can probably say is that, again, you, you start from a basis of unrefined food eat when you're hungry, eat till you're full, <laughs> and you'll probably end up taking in the right amount of food. Mm. What about what about variety of food? You talked about micronutrients before. Is that something <clears throat> that we probably should be conscious of when we're eating? Because like Maddie and I can easily get stuck in a, in a routine of having um, Kumara every night for a week. With Kumara, some, some sort of protein, and then yeah. your broccoli on the side. And well, we have that easy. a yep. lot of the time. Yeah. So I wonder if we're missing out some, you know, key. Mm. I, I think it's possible. You know, there's the, the biggest impact on micronutrient sufficiency is one of two things, really. It's under eating. In total, because if you're not, not taking in the same bulk of food, you're not going to get all those ancillary nutrients. Or it's um, eating, you know, highly processed and refined foods, which are fairly devoid of nutrients in comparison to the calories you're taking in. Um, but I do think variety is important. And we, we know from the New Zealand government data that probably at least half of Kiwis are not getting sufficient amounts of at least one of the vitamins and minerals. Like, for example, 45% of guys don't take in enough zinc. Right, So getting increased variety is going to be really important for that. However, I don't think variety should come at the expense of being able to do it, particularly in the early stages. And the reason I say that is that often I've had clients who, you know, they start with a hiss and a roar, they really want to get into it, and they go to the supermarket and they I've got to get variety. So they buy all the stuff that they've never cooked before, <laughs> yeah. and they put it in the fridge, and it all rots, and they get Uber Eats. <laughs> Come <laughs> on, I've got a celeriac. Yeah, yeah, what exactly. Should I, what should I of make? Yeah. <laughs> what do I do with this? We had that celeriac in the fridge for, I would say, two weeks, and I just, I'd had enough because Maddie bought it because she wanted the variety. You just ate it, ate it raw, out <laughs> yeah. just got in there. I was like, no, I snuck it into a meal without her realizing it, and she didn't even yeah. know it was in there. It was delicious, you yeah. know, but I was waiting to find something to make with it. Well, yeah. you waited too long, and I got impatient. Yeah. <laughs> so I ate the celeriac and dislocated my jaw. Yeah. <laughs> and there we go. But I got a world record for the last crunch of the celeriac. <laughs>
Look, I'll admit, Art and I aren't the biggest drinkers, but boy do we make an exception when it comes to Clean Collective's range of 100% clean vodka and gin RTDs. Yeah, these drinks are completely free from sugar, carbs and preservatives and they're super yum. So they really tick all of our boxes, don't they Matt? They sure do. Clean Collective was actually founded by two young Kiwis, Holly and Dan, and all their products are made right here in New Zealand. So by choosing to drink Clean Collective, you're not only making a better choice for your body, but are supporting local at the same time. Win-win. They have a range of five delicious flavours, including a brand new pear and elderflower with vodka, and are available in four packs of bottles or large 12 packs of cans. Whether you're heading out to a family barbecue or planning a big night out, they've got you covered. You can purchase them from your local liquor store and you'll usually find them in the fridges alongside the other premixes. They're the ones in the crisp white packaging. I hear they're also the official drink of the Rhythm and Vines Festival, which is very cool also. Oh, love that. So be sure to give them a follow at Clean Collective Official on Instagram and Facebook or head to their website www.cleancollective.co for more information. Cheers to drinking clean. Okay, so both of you guys are, I, I think, fans of the food-first approach. Yeah. But what about supplements? Because it's quite a confusing area where there's, like, so many supplements yeah. and then mm. there's uh, talk that's kind of coming out now about, like, if you don't need them, having too many can be a little bit counterproductive or how do you know what you need and do you even need any? And, and just what is the food-first approach? Mm, so quite a, quite a broad <laughs> question there. Yeah. Food first to me means learning how to cook real food and enjoying it, and 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 falling in love with eating healthily because it doesn't healthy food doesn't have to taste like shit. Mm. I think people forget that they boil their broccoli till it's mushy, oh. and they it's not a tuna salad. No, no. We, we, we talk about this all the time because yeah. that's how we grew up with boiled broccoli, oh, yeah. and we didn't mm. re- weren't that enthused by it. And now we're creating all these different so ways good. of eating broccoli, and we like love chard? it. Chard broccoli is awesome. That's our go-to. Oh, no, it's yeah. a bit of garlic. I know. Cumin seeds, that's exactly what food first is. It's, 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 like, I'm not actually a very good cook. I just really like to cook. And oh, I you're, like you're to, a good cook. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I just, I, I, I just enjoy it. For me, it's almost like meditation. I get in the kitchen and I just, I just really enjoy it. It's very mindful. Mm. And I think a lot of people have disconnected from that. They want things quickly. They want it to taste Good and to a lot of people taste good means really sweet or yeah I, I don't know I think I think food first is generally just enjoying whole food and and just kind of taking self responsibility for that. I, yeah. I think Cooking. one thing that you do, which I think is really important, is you're probably not realizing it, but there's like a modular approach to to meals, mm. and I think that's where a lot of people. Um, that we often get so hung up in in recipes, fancy recipes and things. You can follow a recipe, but it doesn't necessarily mean you know how to cook a good meal from scratch. And it doesn't need to be fancy, but it's really just about knowing just a few key concepts of, you know, first and foremost, I think having a modular approach with respect to, okay, let's have at least a palm size portion of a good protein food. And, you know, two to three plus fist-sized servings of vegetables. Add some good healthy oils to it. Add carbs if you're still hungry, having eaten that stuff, you know. That's kind of the the basis of modular meal planning. But then there's a modular aspect to making it taste good as well. Mm. You know, chuck a bit of salt on it. You know, simple stuff. Mm. Add some acid. You know, various little things like that. And I think once people start to understand that, that modular approach... The food first approach becomes so much easier mm. 
because I, I think people are confused and they're also just overwhelmed. Snacking doesn't help because, you know, the the re- look of relief I see on clients' faces when they say, oh, so I've got to have six meals a day. It's like, no. <laughs> you know, if you have... Who has time? Ex- <laughs> no. That's exactly it, right? No. So if you, if you do... I want someone who does enjoy breakfast, then if you wake up and have breakfast, that's usually fairly easy for people to sort out. If lunch is leftovers from the dinner before, you've got that sorted. Yeah. Then what you're really looking at is having to cook one meal a day. So if you can figure out that sort of modular approach, then everything's pretty easy. Mm. On top of that, I think there is a place for for supplements, though, back to your question. Mm. But again, I think that needs to be looked at in a hierarchical way. So food comes first, and then we look at real foundational supplements that are, are almost food-like that help to fill in the gaps. And for a lot of people, that's that's as far as you need to go. You know, I, I really think it does a – and I, I started as a naturopath, right? So I, I know the model of – I've never done it, but I know the model of having someone come into your clinic and you give them 15 different supplements worth 1500 bucks, and they walk out. I personally think that's unethical because you're doing harm to the person. Mm. Their wallet, mm. right? Mm-hmm. We could probably get the same results by really focusing on food and maybe having two or three supplements that fill the gaps. And I think that really starts with uh, a good multi, so long as it's a good quality one. How, yeah. how do people find a good quality one? <clears throat> Got to disclose my conflict of interest, obviously. <laughs> I, I um, am involved with a supplement company, so uh, people need to sort of take that with a grain of salt. But the main thing is that they're looking for certain forms of ingredients. You know, you want basically the best, like methylated forms of B9 rather than synthetic folic acid. Uh, we would want to have methylated forms of B12 rather than cyanocobalamin. So really it's just looking at a product that is hopefully based on a whole food foundation, so it's got more secondary nutrients. And then the the vitamins and minerals that are included are, are really good forms. So obviously we wouldn't have time to go through all of them, but there are some, some good brands out there. Most of them are practitioner-only brands, but there are some ones you can get off the shelf that, that really fill that need. Um, so really a good good quality multi, I'd say if you're not vegan or vegetarian, a, a good quality fish oil, those are really the foundations. And I tend to say as well for most people, have some protein powder in your cupboard. You may not use it, but if you do need a boost in protein or you want to make a smoothie or something, it's good to have it there because then you're really looking at it just as being the foundation of a meal in a glass. Mm. Then obviously from there, there are more specific things, but they really come down to the individual and what they specifically need. I think it's important not to mask things as well that could be easily fixed by just getting a good night's sleep or meditating. That's a good point. Or, or people often message us or me and say, I'm, I'm, my energy's in the, on the floor. Um, what can sell me something? What can I take that will make me feel better? And it's like, well, I mean, have you tried sleeping a bit longer? Or, or, or not, not to be like sarcastic, but yeah. if, if you're, if you're actually doing those have things, you <laughs> 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 um, I think it's just important to get all of those basic habits right. Have structure. Structure is really important. I think you're going to bed at a, a reasonable time every night, so you get sleepy at the same time, it's, and avoiding your phone and and making sure that you're not really stressed. Like even just talking about hormones before, if someone's if someone's hormones are messed up, there are so many things that could be going wrong. It's not just yeah. food; it's 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 everything. It's the whole it's the holistic look at everything. It's, it's such really- a good point. And Maddie, when you were saying before. 
about some, you know, sometimes going overboard can be negative. I've, I've had that happen in clinic, um, not because of what I've prescribed, but I've had clients come to me after seeing other practitioners. And a prime example is I've had at least two or three clients come in having been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, which is a whole different thing. I'm not a big fan of that diagnosis, just in the way it's diagnosed. Mm. Um, having been diagno- diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, they've come in, they've shown me their their hormone results, their diurnal cortisol results, and they, they don't have adrenal fatigue, as you know, 99% of people who have been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue don't actually have it. The problem was then they were getting more and more strung out, more and more anxious. Why is this happening? So I get them to bring in their supplements. And one patient came in and put, uh, must have been 20 odd supplements on the table. I started going through them and I started to see a pattern. Oh, this one's got licorice in it. 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 Taking a massive dose of licorice because that's the key component of a lot of adrenal fatigue formulas because licorice helps to preserve cortisol in the body. Now, the problem with that is most people who have been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, particularly by questionnaire, actually have high cortisol levels, not low. So you give them a supplement that preserves cortisol, so their cortisol is now higher, and you keep giving them that supplement and add to it, cortisol keeps getting higher and higher and higher, stress keeps getting higher and higher and higher, Mm -hmm. you end up a nervous wreck. And then you're wondering, this isn't working. I need more. I need to add more things in. So in those cases, we start from scratch. Put all the stuff in the cupboard. Don't throw it away because you might use it one day. Probably won't, but you might. Let's start from, from scratch. Generally, people are under-eating. Generally, they're under-sleeping. Generally, they're over-engaged on social media. Mm. And they're not getting nutrient repletion. So it's really about some simple diet and lifestyle things and then um, some basic supportive supplementation. In every case of adrenal fatigue, purported adrenal fatigue that I've worked with, they've been back to full function 100% within three months. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's almost like we've got to start looking at it like uh, in, instead of looking outwards for, for fixes, we've got to really start looking inwards and start to ask some hard questions like mm. actually Absolutely. what is going on in my life and how can I fix this and mm. how can yeah. I fix – like even um, feelings of inadequacy mm. and, and like self-esteem issues, like these are all things that are, you know, huge, huge pillars in our health that I think we – we tend to forget about. We're like, yeah, but what supplement can I take to, mm, to you know, yeah. fix that? We kind of want a quick fix rather than doing the internal work. Yeah. Because, yeah, those thoughts and feelings and moods and um, energy levels and everything has mm. very real physiological effect on our bodies. And Probably it's bidirectional, even, yeah. right. which is the super mm. interesting thing, right? It's like sleep and stress are obviously bidirectional. Sleep and gut health are bidirectional. Mm. So your gut health will affect your sleep poor sleep will affect your gut health. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with every facet of health we can see, basically. And you now even see that with, um, it's a sort of hot button topic for me because I've done so much research on it lately, is the effect of um, social media and aggressive media on on our health. Mm -hmm. A small amount, absolutely beneficial. You know, they they found, interesting study actually, they found that um, people who abstain, they did a study where they had people abstaining from social media and they felt more lonely, more isolated, and they got more depressed, right? Wow. The people people in studies who use 
social media excessively have the same thing. So there's this like U-shaped curve. So a small amount of social media is really important because, well, not important, but it can be very beneficial because it provides community support and connection. Mm. But then we get excessive with that. And it's like we discussed before, it's driving anger and this emotive engagement. And there's also then that, um, you know, fear of missing out, there's Mm. comparison, all this kind of stuff. So um, that was a little bit tangential, but what I was getting at is there are also things that we don't think about as being health factors per se that are now known to be bidirectional, just like every other aspect of health. So social media excessively drives stress, which drives poor sleep. You know, social media use often drives poor sleep anyway, has probably a direct effect on internal hormones that affect the gut, all this kind of stuff, right? So it's this complex web and we can't avoid that and we certainly can't plaster it over just by chucking a supplement at it. Mm. Yeah, it's like it just everything comes back to balance, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like using social media just enough to kind of keep you uh, part of it and keep you engaged but not too much that it stresses you out. And mm. same same with foods. It's just everything comes back to balance. Yeah, it's interesting you talking about the sleep and then social media and stuff like the times that I find myself just like wanting to numb out and scroll on social media is mm. generally when I'm really tired. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know? Or stressed. Yeah. 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 Just kinda of wanna... And you just want to zone out. Well yeah. it's the same as like bad TV, except now it's yeah. sort of so intense mm. and like right in our face and it's giving us these like little highs, you know. Yeah. I, I have timers on all my social apps on my phone. Yeah. Mm. I didn't used to have social media apps on my phone for that reason, but because I kinda of have to at times now for, for business and whatnot. I have timers on all of them. So it's half an hour for each, mm. and half an hour of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, in any given day. And the, the cool thing is the because um, I do it natively through the phone, not with a, a, a sort of plug-in app, once I get to that limit, you, you can't access it. You can't override it oh. unless you go into your settings and actually change it. It's not like a pop-up that you can just ignore or close or whatever. Mm. And that's been – I mean, I also do other things. You know, I, I have a Facebook um, – Facebook on my computer, I have a newsfeed eradicator so I don't yeah. see the newsfeed, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's been great. Actually. Which is great because then you just ah. log in, you see your notifications. So I go in, see my notifications. They're generally from my communities, either HPN mm. or um, my, my sort of fan page on Facebook. You know, don't call them a fan page anymore. It's <laughs> showing my age. <laughs> yeah. Just my fan friends. page. You're my space. I've got fan page. My 12 <laughs> fans. Yeah. Yeah. It's linked to your Vivo, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I go to my MySpace and yeah. I see my notifications <laughs> there. But it's quite cool because then all you're seeing is your notifications. Yeah. So you basically clear what you've got to clear. You engage with who you want to engage with and then it's And it's the habit's gone. gone. You don't scroll. You know, habitually you find yourself on mm. Instagram or something. You're like, how? I don't even remember going on there. Totally. Yeah. Like, and and time just goes into this vortex. Yeah. Where, you know, like sometimes I could be scrolling for like an hour, you know, yeah. and I'm like, oh, my God, what about, I've just wasted an hour of my it's, life. It's most people. Well, yeah, yeah, feeling crappy afterwards. It's yeah. so funny. It's a, um, in the sort of more, I guess, life, lifestyle side of my practice, one of the things that I often get clients to do is get a big sheet of paper and write all the things on it that you love doing that you don't have time for, like playing guitar, writing poetry, whatever it happens to be, you know, whatever you're into. Stick it somewhere prominent because when we're like scrolling away for maybe an hour or two hours on end and then we get to the end of our day and we're about to go to bed and we think, oh, I wish I had a, had time mm. to play guitar or whatever. It's like it's right there. Yeah. You had time. Yeah. yeah. And then if we put in place little interventions that maybe stop us from scrolling so much, what's usually the first thing that happens? 
we're thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? And you really want to get back into something that distracts you. But if you've got it right there, oh, that's right. I could, you know, play my guitar, do some painting, get out in the garden, whatever. It's like there and having done that, you feel so much better. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly no uh, sort of judgment involved in all that. I just think that we all we all know internally that we have certain things that, you know, drive us mm. that are really important for our own sense of passion and purpose. And we often just don't do them, but we could allocate the time to it. And then we start to see this escalation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting thought. Like, I mean, we've, we've said it a million times on this podcast, but, but it feels like um, it just stifles creativity because we don't have those moments, as you say, where like, we can just be with our thoughts and mm. think interesting things yeah. and mm. like think out cool ideas because as soon as we have a little moment, we're straight on our phones. Yeah. And like sometimes if if I'm at a cafe or something and I'm meeting a friend, I'm like, I, I don't want to um, go yeah. on my phone while I'm waiting. But then I'm like, what do I do yeah. in yeah, this situation? Exactly. Like, where do I We've look? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's uncomfortable. But it's really, yeah. really uncomfortable. Because you don't really want to sit there looking. It just You feel really weird and yeah. self-conscious you, by that point. You do. Self-conscious yeah. and vulnerable. You kind of feel <laughs> yeah. like a bit of a loner. Yeah, yeah but, but I found like a good little step in the right direction is to bring a book with you. Mm. Just like wherever you go. So yeah. if you're, you know, like an appointment and if they're running late or your friend's yeah, running late, you can just read a book for a bit. You know, and mm. then you don't feel like as much of a weirdo yeah, just sitting there the, looking yeah. around, you know? You're meditating in public <laughs> or something. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that's just a better, it's a better thing than, yeah. than just scrolling on your phone. At least you're doing something that's activating your brain in a good way. Yeah. I think I we don't prioritise, you know, those things that those pursuits entail, like creativity in particular. Mm. And I, I'd throw passion and purpose in there. I know I sort of use those a lot together they're, they're sort of the key themes of um my latest book but i think it's important because we don't prioritize those things societally because we prioritize well we obviously prioritize money but the the things that are entailed with that are more so um, efficiency productivity you know doing things Hustling. yeah being, exactly being, being in the busy hustle. is yeah, huge yeah. and I, I think that sort of circles back to the point of health is an example of that as well. It's an achievement, but it's very arbitrary because it doesn't actually mean anything if we remove it from the context of why we want to do that. Now, one of the reasons I'm so big on human potential as compared to health is achieving health is important and transcending health challenges is important. There's no doubt about that. But we always stop there. You know, with our research, we there's two lines of research, right? You treat disease or you get people to play sport better. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty much it there's <laughs> yeah. almost no research there's some but there's not a lot of research that's involved with going beyond that and looking at human potential so you know for supplements it's not just about fixing a problem maybe there are certain things herbs psychedelics whatever that can help treat conditions but they can also go beyond that and we might see amazing benefits for human potential but in order to do that i think we really need to start prioritizing creativity passion and purpose and um we, we certainly don't do that, but I think we need to because there are some serious problems that the world has. Mm. You know, we've got serious problems with our economic system. We've got serious problems with our social structures. And we've got really serious problems with our climate and our ecological difficulties. And I think the more people we have who are passionate and purposeful and being creative, the more likely it is we're going to get some cool solutions for that, right? 
we're not going to do it just by sitting in the grind. No, that's so true. And we're not going to do it by just being zombies on our phones as well. No. And so on psychedelics, because you're doing a bit of research around medicinal mushrooms, is that right? Or is it a bit kind of too early to say? No, it's not too early to say. Um, I teach a fair amount about the uses of common medicinal mushrooms. Mm -hmm. We obviously have um, a lot of interest in it. You know, Mm -hmm. we, we sort of forage for mushrooms. I'm very interested in entheogens as well. So that's sort of the next step. But it's it's almost looking back. You know, entheogens have been used for thousands of years for for human potential, for, you know, expanding consciousness and things like that. It doesn't sound all that scientific, but I think it really is because what we're looking at is how do we improve the human condition? You know, how do we go beyond? How could this be something that we use for our continued evolution of human consciousness? So medicinal mushrooms are fantastic for a whole range of health benefits and for things like cognition, focus, things that can sort of improve our human potential. But I think there's real opportunity with, you know, psychedelics, maybe with the the intelligent use of, of cannabis, um, a whole range of things that can also help to improve that, that human potential. Right. Um, so I am looking at doing a, a very large national survey on outcomes related to past psychedelic use. My hypothesis is that people who have used psychedelics I think we might see that they have better social outcomes, you know, lower rates of incarceration and things like that. Mm. It's quite possible, and I think there's indicative research from overseas for that. And generally it's because there's these breakthrough experiences that people have, which is why psychedelics are are really being studied now for PTSD and intractable depression. Mm. So with that, though, are you talking about um, past experiences that are, say, using these drugs in like a party sense or using them as in a... Um, a constructive sort of uh, way to expand your mind, more your consciousness, mm. more yeah. therapeutic mm. um, with proper set and setting? It would be broad. So it would basically be looking at all use and we would probably have to subset that down into, you know, what the environment was that someone took it in because mm. I, I agree with you. I think that's a really critical part of the debate that people don't often recognise. You know, given that let's, you know, take... Magic mushroom, psilocybin, for example. One of the key effects of psilocybin is it's a very, it's very powerfully neurogenic, so it can help with the repair and growth of neurons. It can help encourage neuroplasticity very quickly, right? So basically changing the way you think. So think about it this way. If you've got, um, you're taking some mushrooms and you're at home in a comfortable environment and you're using this as a period of reflection, you've got an intention for it, you're going to basically be training your brain to do a particular thing. Great. Whereas if you take a whole bunch of mushrooms and go down to the viaduct and get hammered, <laughs> smoke a few ciggies and, you know, try and get in a fight or something, you're training your brain to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're basically encouraging neuroplasticity for all the wrong pathways, Yeah, probably. I don't think that's the kind of life that's going to drive health and happiness for most people. No. So, yeah, you're 100% correct. I think um, intention, setting, and also dosing, you know, because mm. microdosing can can be very profoundly beneficial as well. And I also think that plays across into the cannabis debate because people tend to think, and I think we have a binge culture in New Zealand, you know, I've, it's well known that I've had my interesting periods of life. I wrote about it in in a couple of my books and things like that. So people know about that. But when we're younger, you don't just go out and drink a couple of beers, right? You drink a dozen. Mm. You don't just have a puff. You smoke three joints. You don't just take 
half a tip of acid, you take three, right? <laughs> yeah. Kiwis, we just, yeah, yeah all or nothing. Yeah. But when we start to look at, and I've seen this particularly with like my cancer patients and things like that, the intelligent application of mm-hmm. microdosing, even things like cannabis, changes the whole perspective. You know, you might have one little puff through a vaporizer, so you're not getting the smoke, and you only feel subtly different. Right, but there's still a big effect on reducing anxiety, reducing pain. You know, there was a really interesting study that came out about a month ago, and I saw it promoted all over social media as it is, saying cannabis is ineffective for pain relief. That was the headline, right? So I looked when I looked at the study. You know why the the headline was that? Why? Because cannabis was only as effective as standard care, which is taking painkillers. So it's not ineffective. It's actually really effective. It's just not more effective. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That's very misleading. Interpretation of scientific research in the mainstream is is typically very poor. Yeah. Mm. So just going back to microdosing. So then how do you define microdosing? Is that sort of, I guess, taking a small amount of the drug to the point where it elicits beneficial effects on you in some way? but not so much that it can have negative effects. It's basically minimally or non-psychoactive. So generally with a psychedelic, for example, it's usually around one-tenth of the the threshold dose where someone would start to, to feel it. But the sort of indicative or emerging research is that there are still some profound benefits for, say, like neuroplasticity. So, you know, um, brain brain function, brain health, things like that. Um, interestingly, lion's mane mushroom, uh, which Hericium erinaceus, or in New Zealand we have Hericium novazilande, um, that has very similar effects, but it's completely non-psychoactive. But very similar effects for improving cognition, focus. Um, one of the few things that you can take that's relatively common that will actually increase uh, nerve regrowth factors in the brain. So pr- pretty amazing treatment for people who've had concussions and TBI mm. and all sorts. Okay, and then... <laughs> there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Yes. No, that's, that's fascinating. So, yeah, it is. Yeah, so, so going back to also to the mushrooms that you were talking about that you're potentially studying. So these are grown in New Zealand, and we're not just talking about psilocybin, you're talking about other... We're, we're mainly talking about um, the... I guess I can talk about it. We're, we're mainly talking about the native form of lion's mane. Yeah. Yep. And there are a lot of different... Um, you know, we have native reishi here. We have native oyster mushrooms. You know, we've got a huge array of fungi that haven't really been well studied. There's been some early research looking at some of the, uh, I guess, chemical components of them, but there hasn't been any, to my knowledge, that's looking at the functional outcomes, which is where I come in as a researcher because I'm not a chemist. You know, I don't get involved with all the assay kind of stuff. Um, I, I do the blood analysis and whatnot, but what I'm really looking at is how do these things then translate into performance or health or human potential so then we're looking purely at the functional outcomes from taking these things and that might be through a raft of cognitive tests or it might be just looking at the blood and seeing how they improve health markers Mm. that's really interesting yeah Um, you'd be surprised if you know in autumn yeah or you know through the sort of early phase of winter and whatnot pretty much april to august just going out into the bush around here you'd be able to come back with armloads of edible 
mushrooms. And all of those edible mushrooms will have appreciable health benefits. Even the humble old, you know, sort of field mushroom has a lot. I was going to ask you about, like, the humble button from from the supermarket. Like, will that have some kind of, Absolutely. Wow. There is one that looks similar to it that you shouldn't eat, though, right? That was my You've next question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you surely <laughs> just can't go wandering and just be, munch on that sort of really red and no. white spotted toadstool. No. Well, you can. Well, you can actually. Amanita muscaria. Yeah, that's a good Is that that one? Fly yeah, agaric, yeah. yeah. So that's the, the, the scarlet agaric or fly agaric. They call it the smurf mushroom. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. your classic. Yeah. Totally. That's, that's your classic, one. right? And that's the one where you're, you're out in the bush and your mum says, don't eat that. Yeah. Which is fair because if you just eat it raw, it can be very toxic. Um, it, it's it's not actually considered lethal, really, because you need to eat quite a few to kill yourself, but it's possible. It's not like a lot of the little brown mushrooms that you see, which are commonly mistaken for, say, psilocybin mushrooms. Mm. That's the most common form of mushroom poisoning because it looks like a magic mushroom, but yeah. it, even one of them could kill you, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, whereas yeah. they're, they're very distinctive, the fly agaric, the toadstool, you know, red sort of toadstool. They actually can be used if you prepare them Correctly, and they're a very common. Uh, they were a very common food and medicine way, way back. Um, they were probably the first sort of semi psychedelic mushroom that that people ate, and they're probably responsible for a lot of the um, early Christmas sort of symbology, red and white, a oh. reindeer, flying reindeer, mm. because the Sami people up in <laughs> Scandinavia used to feed the mushrooms to the reindeer because they would detoxify them and then they'd drink the urine because that had the the active muscimol. I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. That's I really wasn't cool. Either. I feel like we need to do another separate podcast on <laughs> just mushrooms. On edible mushrooms. mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think so. Um, what did I want to ask you? But had- as as a medicine, if you can prepare if it's prepared correctly, so I wouldn't you know, recommend that people do this because they would you really know what you're correctly. doing. Yeah. But when you know what you're doing, you're preparing it correctly. Um, it's a very potent GABA agonist. Now, GABA is a neurotransmitter in the brain that's relaxing, right? We typically in the modern world have a GABA to glutamate imbalance in the brain, which drives overfiring of neurons, stress, anxiety. So this is a GABA agonist and it's very good at doing it. So you have a, a tea made out of Amanita muscaria. Mm. It's incredibly relaxing. Good sleep. Oh, really? Yeah, good for sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I want to go foraging now. Yeah. Let's go foraging. Well, yeah, but let's take you guys because yeah, I don't want to get into the poison. This is good foraging yeah. around here. Yeah. yeah. It could be. It's like a cowrie forest it's, up there. It's so much fun. Yeah, it'd be amazing. You know, when you're in the bush, and I'm into edible weeds as well. I eat a lot of we, – we eat a lot of weeds out of the garden. <laughs> we do. Yeah, oh. well, because it's like <laughs> – Weeds doesn't really no. mean anything, and right? And it tastes it's good. Just, Weeds yeah. just mean yeah. you're incredibly good at growing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And we had, uh, when we lived in Takapuna, we had flatmates. And it was hilarious. One day I came home and they were pulling out armloads of puha to put in lettuce. And we live um, down on the Black Rocks down there in Takapuna, so it was right on the water. And there, there's no way lettuce is going to grow there. Like the waves <laughs> literally come over the wall someday. It's just going to kill everything, right? Hmm. But south of all the puha just grows like crazy it's good eating yeah it's wow. nice so we, we add quite a lot of that to our salads you know south thistle um oxalis uh kenilworth ivy you basically you'd be blown away even just any normal suburban garden you walk around eat that eat that eat that yeah pickled daisies you know all sorts of stuff magnolia um fuchsia i've pickled fuchsia flowers you know there's all these things anyway what i was saying is you're walking <laughs> through the bush right and when you're looking for particular things, it changes the whole experience. Because often I think when we're walking through the bush, we're, we're going for a walk. 
So a whole mindset is I'm going for a walk. Whereas when you're foraging, it's like I'm here experiencing, looking for things and you see, even if they're not edible or medicinal, man, we've seen the coolest, craziest looking little fungi. And once you start getting into fungi, you go down the rabbit hole because they are amazing organisms. Really? The biggest organisms on the planet are fungi. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. And they're all, you know, they're all interconnected, aren't they? They're interconnected and they're connected with the the trees. They grow grow symbiotically with them. They also, um, you know, probably communicate with the trees and encourage communication between the trees as well. So it's almost like they create this this vast neural network. They're pretty, pretty cool. It's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We spent so many months foraging for mushrooms that we were looking down at the ground all the time. So we were just like, we were obsessed with mushrooms and we were like finding them who could find the biggest ones and stuff. Got quite competitive. <laughs> and um, we went for a walk when it was kind of finally mushroom season was over and we started looking up. We're like, holy shit, the trees are actually really amazing. We haven't even seen any of them for months. But I think because we had been looking down, we were then able to look up mm. and then we start to appreciate, you know, the, the trees again. Yeah, yeah. It's and, pretty cool. And, you know, the... Started in the bark. Stuff. And yeah. it's good to forage with a woman because there's something like if cliff goes out by himself i've got a point to this if you go out by yourself and you're in the bush like in the (laughs) foraging around city bush it is quite unsettling like if you're walking and you see someone rustling rustling around i feel so bad sometimes because i'll go off the path and i'll be sort of rooting around in the and And i'm standing up with daisies like it's fine i'll be fine by myself and Some poor yeah. woman sort of walks past and I'm there, this bearded dude in the bush. I'm, yeah. thinking, I'm just looking for mushrooms, seriously. <laughs> and not just those mushrooms, like <laughs> standard edible mushrooms. Just normal yeah. mushrooms. Just, yeah, nothing weird here. Just <laughs> yeah. move on. Some good tips. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, because um, cause we went down to um, down to the lake a while ago and and I was going foraging for mushrooms, like not the weird ones, just, yeah. you know, like have, having a look for, for mushrooms. And you were like barefooted, <laughs> you know, with this, these crazy clothes on. And he'd come out of the bush. I was like, who are you? <laughs> He's had like, you know, like dirt on him. His stripes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was a really really nice experience yeah, it is cool you feel yeah. really connected with and because everything. It's, it's it's at a time of year when the tenancy might be as well to just stay indoors mm. yeah you know through autumn into winter and we we were outdoors a lot more probably yeah. in some respects yeah. and certainly active outside and you know getting out to, to different little going to the forest up in riverhead and all sorts you know yeah, yeah it's fun yeah um, okay, so moving on to a new topic, because um, we're, we're you know, getting short on time. Cliff, you mentioned your latest book. What is your latest yeah. book? The latest book is called The Credo, and it's really, um, it's a passion project that I started, I don't know how long ago, but it was a long time ago. And really the idea was initially that I think without being... Some of this is a little bit trite because it's it's talked about a lot, but without being clear on our why, but then within that also having a clear idea of our ethos, it's very difficult to, to live a happy life, right? So really the, the book is about understanding that a little bit more, understanding your why, how you can sort of figure that out, how people can figure out their ethos and value set. And then how to incorporate things in their life that will help to drive their creativity, passion, and purpose. That's really the key. So the, the whole idea is really 
congruent with what I've been talking about a lot at, at sort of conferences and things the last few years, which is that idea of going beyond health. And encapsulated within that, there's a lot of the concepts that we've been talking about today. You know, so are these things that you're doing just really distracting you from your purpose? Are the things that we're doing keeping us from being passionate and, and creative? You know, so basically how can we connect with those things just that little bit more so that we can sort of start to transcend and go beyond and really start to achieve our human potential, whatever that is, because there's no, there's no right or wrong way. You know, if someone is living congruent with their ethos and they are being passionate and purposeful in their life and also not being hung up on bullshit ideas of creativity as well. Mm. Like, you know, we've talked about this a lot and it's a sort of self-limiting thing for me is I was always told when I was younger that I'm not an artist, right? You're not an artist. And I couldn't really, well, I probably could, but I was sort of told that I couldn't draw that well. I didn't have the beautiful pastel crayon work that some of my three-year-old cohorts did, you know, <laughs> colleagues did. But um, I, I've realized that I am a creative person. I express myself through through speaking, through writing, um, through gardening. I, I've done bonsai since I was a little kid and I love it. I was, you know, before I got into nutrition, I was really considering being a landscape architect because I wanted to, to design Zen-inspired gardens. I love painting. You know, I've picked that up again recently and I, I really dig Sumie style painting, which is like Japanese calligraphy, right? So the, the, the I guess, transcending there was realizing it doesn't have to be for anyone else and it doesn't even have to be good. It might be good or it might not be, but that's completely inconsequential. Creativity for any person is a distinct and individual thing. And I think once we start to live that intrinsic, motivated life, then we can be a heck of a lot happier. And that's the, the outcome that everyone wants. Again, some people put that down. They say, oh, that's too simplistic. But ask anyone, what do you want to be in life? Happy. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple. Mm. Yeah, 100%. That's beautiful. Um, how is that book out now? Mm. Yep. Yeah, it's been out for... About a year. Yeah, a little under a year. How do people track it down? Um, just search for it on Amazon. Go to cliffharvey.com. Uh, you know, all my sort of links out to the various weird and wonderful things I do are there. <laughs> cool. Cool. And how about you, Bella? How do people find find you? I'm I'm on Instagram mostly, mm -hmm. but um, your Bella Nutritionist is my handle. But yeah. I just post there. I'm not I'm not a religious poster. I just post there when I'm inspired. But it's because you've got boundaries around yeah, your social yeah, media. Exactly. Yeah. I try and just use it for fun. If it starts to feel bad, I'm off it. Yeah. 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 I love that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, does that bring us to our final question? Yeah. Okay. So our, our final question is um, if you could have three foods and three foods only for the rest of your life, what would they be? We'll start with you, Bella. Does they have to be an ingredient or a meal? An ingredient. an ingredient. An ingredient. Okay. Yeah. Hold on, I have to think about that just for a second. I think eggs would be one. Mm -hmm. So versatile, even though I was traumatized. I've come Not back from that. I've, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've worked through that. <laughs> so eggs. Um, what else do I use a lot? Oh, this is a really tough question. It could be something. It doesn't have to be delicious. things you use a lot. Yeah. It could be a, you know, like if a I, okay, treat. if I had to eat three things for the rest of my life, it would be, yeah, it would be eggs, it would be chocolate. And it would be, I know Cliff's going to say something and I'm going to kick myself for not saying it. <laughs> you just do you. Oh, shit. What's my third one? 
Can you come back to me? Yeah. My third one? I've got yep. two. Okay, so we've got two out of three okay. there. I might steal one of Cliff those. onto you. I don't think I could choose ingredients, so I'm going to cheat here. And I would say... He's going rogue. Yeah. I'm going rogue. He's making up his own rules. Yeah. <laughs> Burgers, milk, and cookies would be the three, <laughs> like, meals, foods that I would choose. Absolutely. Burgers, milk, and cookies. Yeah. Having said that, no. Yeah. If I could, If I could only have three ingredients... This would be my death row meal, mm-hmm. right? And I could pretty much get it done. I'd probably need four ingredients, but sausages, yeah, kumara, but as mash. So I'd have to have a little bit of milk and butter in there. Maybe we'll I could just choose that's one. That's okay. We'll yeah. So that's my that's my final meal if Do, I ever get to that point. What about a sauce? Just sausages on mash. Oh, it's true. You got to have some tomato sauce with yeah, that. Yeah, it sounds dry. Yeah. Hey, if you, I could Something do it though. Brave. If yeah. I had to, sausages, kumara mash. That would be. Yeah. Enough. Wow. I'm feeling easy. How interesting. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that from you. <laughs> no, I was expecting sausages. My third ingredient would probably be kumara, just because you can make a shitload of stuff out of it. And it's delicious. And it's really good. Yeah. yeah. So mm. kumara eggs and I forgot about my third one, more chocolate. chocolate. I think yeah, a lot of times we go back three. to... We, we go back to our upbringing though, right? Mm. And I, I spent a lot of time with my, my grandparents growing up and, and they sort of came through um, from pretty, well, very humble, you know, sort of starts and they came through the war and the rationing and all that kind of stuff to the point where um, they, they used to eat roadkill, you know, just to get some extra protein mm. and stuff like that. So a lot of what we ate was very much based on that subsistence mentality. And obviously they they came here for a better life and they ended up um, doing quite well for themselves. But um, there was still that very simple food, you know. And I think often you sort of go back to that and it's just so comforting. Mm. It may not always be the best thing, but, hey, it's... Um, There's nothing wrong with a saucy. No. no. We, love a, we love a good saucy. Yeah. Oh, bloody, and yeah. a, good, a good saucy. And you yeah. can get a bloody good sausage. You can get really good ones you now. Can. Like gourmet now. Yeah, proper <laughs> yeah. gourmet, gluten free, mm. nice ones. I've never made a sausage. I might try that. Well, then you've got to get the, 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 the machine thing. Yeah, yeah. and the skin yeah. to go yeah. which is sort of disgusting. Yeah, it is a bit gross. Mm. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this podcast. <laughs> Hey, thank you so much for um for your time, guys, oh, and your pleasure. knowledge Thanks, for coming all the way up here. We really appreciate it. It was, it was our pleasure. Really great to chat. All the way up here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, road trip. Thanks, yeah. guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message and leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. (laughs) (laughs) Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.